Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff. And I'm Jesse Balmer. We cover politics and state government for the USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau. Ohio is in the middle of the biggest public corruption case in state history. It involves a web of dark money, an Ohio-based Fortune 500 company, 4.5 million consumers, and some top politicos. The case has already taken some dramatic turns. Arrests, guilty pleas, FBI searches, executive firings, and the suicide of one defendant. It's a lot. And in this special episode of Ohio Politics Explains, we will walk you through what happens when someone is under federal investigation. Joining us is defense attorney David Axelrod of Columbus. He advises clients on public corruption, regulatory enforcement issues, and tax matters. He's also served as a special prosecutor for the state and as an assistant U.S. attorney in Florida. He represents former Ohio House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger, who resigned in 2018 when the FBI was investigating him. David, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what advice do you have for your clients if they were to get a knock on the door from the FBI? Well, we've all seen the Miranda warnings on television. You have the right to remain silent. Anything that you say can and will be used against you. You have a right to have to counsel. If you can't afford it, counsel will be appointed. And in my experience, the FBI knocks on the door. They usually do it at a time when the people are, when the People they want to interview would have their guards down often at dinner time on a Sunday or at 7 a.m. in the morning when everybody's sleepy. And everybody forgets that. They forget the Miranda warnings. And more often than not, they talk before they hire counsel. One of the things that I did with one of my late partners was in a situation where we had a client that, that really did that and didn't even know that he'd done that. He said, we haven't really talked. We didn't really talk about anything. We watched a few downs of the Buckeyes games with the FBI agent. So we created a card that was our business card. On the back of it, it would say, this is my lawyer. He says that if I talk to you, he'll kill me. <laughs> we told them to hold the card up so the, the FBI agent or IRS agent or whoever it was could see the identity and the contact information for the lawyer and read the back. And the back is zip this, it, this keep is, your mouth shut, right, call your lawyer. Right. So take those rights seriously and exercise all of them. So what happens when a federal investigation becomes public? I mean, how does it impact somebody's employment, their reputation, their bank account? Well, most often it doesn't become public the way, for instance, the Mar-a-Lago search warrants have become public. Most often what happens is the, the federal agents behave responsibly. I mean, I have to say I fight with them all the time. I used to be on their side. I have... Unlike what you hear a lot now, I have found them overwhelmingly to be dedicated public servants who are doing their best to do their job the way they're supposed to do it. So most of the time, there will be third-party record keepers, for instance, a bank that will get a subpoena for the records of somebody. And there are some circumstances, depending on the offense, where they can order the bank not not to disclose it to the subject of the investigation, even when they can't issue that order. Typically, a a subpoena is accompanied by a cover letter from an assistant United States attorney that says that we ask that you not disclose it because disclosing it could impede or impair the investigation of of federal crimes and could constitute obstruction of justice. So it's meant to, you know, be a little intimidating and to to cause the recipient of it not to call, for instance, in the case of a bank, their depositor. But there are third party, there are third party subpoenas to lots of different places. And oftentimes it does get out. And then... You have the spectacle that you often see of somebody being confronted by the media and having to either deny having wrongdoing or referring you to their lawyer who says we can't comment on on an ongoing investigation. Or even in some instances in which I've been involved, you have to defend your client publicly. When your client is being pilloried by the media because the media is being fed information by the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the law enforcement uh, agents generally, sometimes you just have to defend them. 
and you have to go to the, you have to talk to the media. And occasionally I have, most often I have not. But I mean, I imagine also while you, you know, you're under investigation by the FBI, it's become public, it's in the newspapers. So you have to hire a lawyer to help defend you and your reputation. It's got to be costly, right? It certainly is because what you, you can be reactive or proactive. And I think the best lawyers are most of the time proactive. So you try and find out what the FBI has been doing. You try and find out what the IRS has been doing or whoever the investigative agency is. And you try and shadow them. If you learn that they've talked to a particular witness, you try to talk to that witness. If you've learned that they've subpoenaed particular documents, you try and get copies of those documents and review them. So you can figure out what they're looking at, how they're approaching it. Sometimes you can get an idea of where they are in the investigation. But it's really time-consuming. So sure, it gets, it gets expensive. I mean, good, good lawyers are expensive and charge for their time. Makes sense. Department of Justice in 2006 issued a letter to now former Speaker Larry Householder saying that no charges were going to be filed. I guess, what is that called? How common is that to happen? It's called a closing letter. And what it says is our investigation has been closed. It doesn't say we found you innocent because they haven't. They've found that they can't find what it, whatever it was that they were looking for. So it's an, a written notification that it's closed. The Department of Justice manual has a provision about closing letters. And what it says is that closing letters are sometimes appropriate, not always. They are most, in, most appropriate in situations in which a case has gotten a lot of attention by the media. But it, it's also very clear that there's no requirement under any circumstances that the Department of Justice or any other agency issue a closing letter. And most often they don't. They just let it fade away. And if someone gets charged with bribery or racketeering or some other serious charge, how long does it take for that to go to trial? Uh, how long do these cases take? Well, it depends on how they were investigated. But like, let's take take the case of Larry Householder, in which I'm not involved, so most of what I know comes from the media. But they did wiretaps. I mean, you can tell that from looking at the affidavit that was released publicly. Wiretaps are labor-intensive and Oftentimes, there are hundreds, sometimes thousands of hours of recordings. And as a defense lawyer, you've got to listen to them. I mean, sometimes the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office will say, we'll show you the ones that are most important. And then you face the problem whether, A, to trust them. And I have to say, overwhelmingly, the assistant United States attorneys that I deal with are very trustworthy, and I take them at their word. But they may not see as exculpatory something that you see as exculpatory. So even if you take them, as I do most of the time, if you take them at their word, they may not recognize among those recordings something that you would look at and say, wow, that really helps. So there are all these recordings. Now, you know, I'm old enough that I grew up trying cases on paper. When I was an assistant U.S. attorney, we used to go in the courtroom with boxes of documents. Now they're flash drives. And in a case in which I'm involved right now, the Department of Justice has given me discovery consisting of, I think we came up with two point, two point something terabytes. Wow. That's about, well, it's 3.2 million records, not 3.2 million pages, 3.2 million records. So you have to find ways to digest the information in them. And that process is just very time consuming. So it's not unusual. I mean, the amount of time that the householder case is taking is not unusual. I've also had investigations that have gone on for years. I mean, active investigations that have gone on for years and resulted in a case. I had one not that many years ago that went on for four years. That's a lot of time. So after someone has been charged, sometimes the U.S. attorneys will sit down and have like a chat with your client or a proffer. What is that? What does that entail? Well, there are two kinds of proffers. There's a proffer and a reverse proffer. A proffer is one where I want to make a deal. I think my client is not as bad as they think it is, or maybe that I think they shouldn't prosecute my client at all. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to mitigate the circumstances. I'm trying to minimize whatever harm is done. And so we go... And most often it's done without the client there. 
and I tell the agents what I expect to prove. I phrase it in a way most often that would not waive the attorney-client privilege, but it's what I think I'm going to be able to prove if we go to trial. Sometimes I take affidavits. Sometimes I take business records. Sometimes I take all, and the affidavits would be from third parties, of course. Sometimes I take business records. I take all sorts of exhibits and have a, a, a mini trial. I've even been known to get a polygraph examination done in a way that the results are protected under the attorney-client privilege, which is nothing more than a predictor of what would happen with an FBI polygraph. But in one particular case, I let the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office have at my client for, this is go, goes beyond what a proffer is, but I let them have at, at my client for several hours, and he did great, at the conclusion of which I showed them the polygraph examination that he passed with flying colors and knew what the immediate response would be was, which was, will will he take an FBI polygraph? And he did. And the result of the whole thing was that there were, as I recall, about six alleged co-conspirators and five of them were prosecuted and he was not. But then there's a reverse proffer. A reverse proffer is where the defense lawyer says, we're going to plead not guilty and we're going to go to trial. And the prosecutors say to you, that's going to be an unmitigated disaster for your client. We're telling you, we're going we're gonna to overwhelm him in court with evidence. And you go over and sometimes they give you a peek at what their evidence is in an, in an effort to say to your client, we've really got you. And that's a reverse proffer. And it's, of course, always welcome because oftentimes you really don't know what you're dealing with until the prosecutors do that. And I find that in this district, prosecutors are very good about doing that and about sharing information. Why do, why do uh, so few cases end up going to trial? The system is structured to encourage guilty pleas. In federal court, I think the statistic is something like 95% of cases result in guilty pleas. It's a, it's a very big number, very big percentage. But there are a couple of reasons. One is that federal law enforcement agencies are, are very good. And particularly in cases like narcotics cases and those sorts of things, it's cases where the question is, did he do it or didn't he? They've just got the defendant nailed. They've got wiretaps. They've, got, they've tracked people with GPS and their mobile phones and they've got informants. Sometimes they do tax cases. So you, if you have an informant that says so-and-so is a drug trafficker, they might beat up the, on the informant because the informant has his own baggage or her own baggage and sometimes is even paid by the Department of Justice. The case comes, it becomes much more credible when, for instance, you have an IRS agent who's done a net worth investigation and can show that during the period under investigation, the defendant has $10 million in unexplained wealth. So in, in a lot of those kinds of cases, they've just got you. The cases that where there, they more often go to trial are cases where what happened is not an issue, but rather what the defendant had in mind when he did it is an issue. Now, that can also be a tax case where your opening statement, you may say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, make it really easy for you. The tax returns were wrong. That's not the question that you're going to be asked to decide. The question you're going to be asked to decide is what the defendant knew and what he thought when he filed the returns and, and how, they, how it came about that the returns were wrong. The other part, the other part of this is that the system is structured to encourage it in various ways. For instance, we have federal sentencing guidelines. And the way a judge calculates a sentence, for example, in a drug case is he starts with the quantity of drugs and that gives a base offense level. And then there are various adjustments for different things. But the primary driver is the amount of drugs. They use drugs as a proxy for culpability. The idea is we can't measure what's in a person's heart. So we look at how much, the, how, how much they dealt in. In a fraud case, they do that with money. And again, you know, you can't measure what's in somebody's heart, but you can look at the number of dollars that they stole or defrauded people out of. I'll come back to that in a second because that's a kind of an interesting problem. But you get a reduction under the guidelines for acceptance of responsibility. So if you come in early and you say, I did it and I'm sorry, and let me tell you about the other people who did it with me, you get either two or three points off the guidelines, so you get a shorter sentence. Then the judges don't have to follow the guidelines. There are grounds for departure or, well, there for a Present purposes, I'll just call them departures. There are grounds for departures from the guidelines. One of the one of the grounds, in fact, I'm sure it's the ground that causes 
the largest departures routinely and probably the most departures is a guideline that says that the judge can depart downward in exchange for a defendant's substantial assistance in the investigation and prosecution of another person. So if you sit down with them and you say, let me tell you about the other people who did it, then the guidelines, which are typically you know, pretty high, they don't quite go out the window, but the judge doesn't, fo- doesn't have the same imperative to follow them. I mean, they're, they're just guidelines. The judges don't have to follow them, but it's, a, it's just it's a systemic thing to depart downward in exchange for cooperation. So there are incentives, particularly if you think you're going to be convicted, to just accept responsibility for your offenses and to tell about the other people who did them with you. And if you're the first in, you get the best deal? Typically. But, of course, they don't want to trade down. Like the major, the major bad guy comes in first, they're not going to give him much credit for testifying against his minions. So, you know, there are a number of different dynamics at work. Let me come back to the amount of money as a proxy for culpability. Yeah, because House Bill 6 is uh, alleging, uh, you know, $61 million in bribes. Right. So this, this actually comes from a very fine judge in New York named Jed Rakoff. And I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to get his story exactly right, but I'll get something close. So you have two different defendants. One who's something like a penny stock fraud defendant, and he defrauds a million people who can afford to buy penny stocks out of a dollar apiece. So it's a million dollar stock fraud. Then there's another defendant who defrauds an elderly person out of his or her life savings, which may only be $25,000. The guidelines would be a lot higher for the guy who stole a dollar a piece from a million people than they would for the other guy. Who's the worst guy? It doesn't always work. And there is, I have to say, a recognized body of law about the guidelines overstating the culpability of the defendant. So there, there's case law on departures downward for that reason. But the amount of money involved isn't always a great proxy for the evil that's being done. What turning to turning to House Bill Six um, in that case? What you know? What are the big challenges that the government and the big challenges that the defense face? Information management, for one, because it's uh, like just an avalanche of records. Well, it's ter- it's terabytes. I mean, do you you remember the national the National Century Financial Enterprises case? Well, I won't go. It, it, I won't bore you with an old case, but it's just terabytes of data, as I said, and it's vast numbers of witness statements, and it's just all kinds of stuff, and it just takes a long time and a lot of money. Typically. I mean, very often we put the data on a review platform. There's one called Relativity that we use all the time, and it enables us to do keyword searches because often they produce so much stuff that it's just not humanly possible to read and digest all of it. So you have to come up with keyword searches to figure out how to retrieve those documents that are relevant. So there are those sorts of things. But again, oftentimes you can't, you just can't humanly read everything. The government has challenges too, though. One of the government's challenges is, is, as most people know, they have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And in white-collar cases, that can be really difficult. They're, they're complicated structures. You're talking to people. The jurors are going to be typically people who are not familiar with them. And you have, to, you have to teach school. And sometimes it's really hard. You know, I'll give you an example. In an antitrust case, I mean, I'm involved in an antitrust case where I represent a witness. And in the antitrust case, the government says they were price-fixing. And you can see the defendant's price-fixing by the movement of prices by what actually happened. And the defendants come in with all sorts of economic justifications for price movement and other explanations for it. And antitrust is complicated and the jurors have to figure this out. So that's a challenge for the government. You know, I, I sometimes in closing argument use a graphic that's like a temper, it's like a thermometer and it shows that it has to be super hot before you, you achieve proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the government's biggest challenge. What is bribery and what is racketeering and what does the government have to prove in that? Is it, does it have to be like an explicit bribe agreement? Like, here, here's a bag of cash. Now, please vote for my thing. Or is it more wink and nod? Um, well, it can be either or both. For a real bribery case, the government has to prove that there's a quid pro quo. 
you know, this comes from a Supreme Court case involving the former governor of Virginia, but there has to be an ex- there has to be a quid pro quo. It doesn't have to be explicit. It can be inferred by, from circumstantial evidence, as I mentioned before. They do wiretaps, and you get conversations where nobody says it in the way in which you you phrased it in your question, but you can just see it happening. There are statutes that the government uses that do not require a quid pro quo. And that's one of the reasons they use them. It requires somewhat less proof, but even then it requires corrupt intent. It requires that you performed an official act with corrupt intent, which normally comes because somebody does something in exchange. But they do have to prove quid pro quos, and it's often not not easy. For instance, in the case involving the former governor of Virginia, it's called the McDonough case, he was arranging meetings and doing things that were going to help somebody get a grant, get government grants. And one of the rules is it has to be a quid pro quo in exchange for an official act. And the Supreme Court found that setting up meetings and making introductions were not official acts, and therefore he could not be convicted of what the, the crime really is called Hobbs Act, Hobbs Act extortion. And so the case was thrown out the window. So you know, there's a lot that has to be proved. They're not easy cases. Yeah, that Virginia governor case made it a lot harder for the feds. Mm-hmm. It did. Sure. A lot of this case is focused on dark money as a means to convey these bribes. I guess how novel of a concept is that in federal prosecutions? Are there other cases that are looking at that, too? Well, in my experience, assistant United States attorneys who try these sorts of cases don't like dark money. Oftentimes, when you get into the conversations surrounding dark money and how it's used and who does what in exchange for getting those kinds of campaign contributions, you're essentially seeing sausage being made. I mean, it's politics and politics can be really ugly and... I think dark money can look really bad. There can still be a quid pro quo. I mean, it can still be used for a bribe rather than a campaign contribution. You know, and that's part of the challenge for the government is to show that it's not a legitimate campaign contribution where you give money to somebody who is of like mind with you in the hope that he or she will vote vote for whatever it is that's important to you, as opposed to giving money to them in exchange for the vote. Sometimes that's hard to, hard to prove. Yeah, it seems like that could be a thin line. Mm-hmm. When you look at the House Bill 6 case, this does have has so many big elements. I mean, what what did you think of of it when it was when it became public and when it started to unfold? Were you shocked? Were you waiting for somebody to call you with uh, a request to represent for representation or what? Well, somebody did, but I was conflicted out of it. But shocked, you know, I guess surprised. I'm rarely shocked by some level of public corruption. You know, I just I, th- I think it goes on. I think most of the most of the people in the General Assembly are dedicated public servants who are there for the right reasons. But once in a while, there's somebody who isn't. But the public gets a distorted view of these things because, you know, now I'm forgetting whether it was the search, a search warrant affidavit or the arrest warrant affidavit. I think it was the arrest warrant affidavit that was released. And an affidavit like that is a really one sided thing. It's the agent or the prosecutor writing down every incriminating thing he, he or she can think of. They are not required to write down the exculpatory things. So it's a very, very one-sided uh, document. So when that's released to the public, it looks terrible, and you just don't hear the other side of it. And you may not hear the other side of it until it gets to trial. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's like you have President Trump and some of his representatives saying, we want to see the search warrant affidavit unsealed. That is sometimes a case of be careful what you wish for. Because that search warrant isn't going to say that he was a good guy. That search warrant is going to say he committed federal crimes, and here's why. Here's why we think that. Here's what our evidence is of that. So oftentimes it's, you know, you, you can saber rattle because most of the time they won't do it. And the government is opposing, in this instance, unsealing the affidavit, which lays out the probable, probable cause. But once in a while they get unsealed, and it's, they're, not in, they're not exculpatory documents. But the advantage, of course, is as a defense lawyer, you learn what the government's case is. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to add? Any question we should have asked that we didn't ask? No, I think you've, I think you've covered it pretty well. I think that what's happening with the Mar-a-Lago situation is, 
itself a civics lesson in how these things work. And it will be interesting to see how it unwinds. All right. Well, we really appreciate you uh, coming in and sharing your insights. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like the Worcester Daily Record. That's the-daily-record.com. dot